0: Taken from the book of James, James chapter one, and we'll look at verses nine through eleven. It's James Chapter one, verses nine through eleven. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, the first thing we need to do before we, or in really, in addressing uh, our text is to confront and to debunk a common misconception that people both in and outside of the church uh, has as it relates to whether it's intentionally or whether it's unintentionally, and as it's propagated in different ways, but misconceptions related to personal wealth. And it kind of usually falls along these ways, even though, like I said, we will... Express it somewhat differently, but it usually comes out in the same place, and that is the misguided notion that there is inherent virtue in poverty, and that uh, there that that vice um, and, and well vice is in inha- or excuse me vice is inherently attached to wealth. Both ideas are wrong. The idea that that there is inherent virtue in poverty and that there is inherent vice in wealth. Now, this view is doesn't just come off the top, even though it's propagated in so many different ways. And sometimes people are not even intentional in spreading this misconception, but it, it circulates. People think that somehow if you're poor, then you are automatically... A a virtuous person and somehow if you are wealthy that you are inherently evil and wicked. And when you look at uh, many phrases in scripture, and this is why I say this has been propagated from both in and outside of the church, there are a number of different ways that people or a number of different passages out of the scriptures that have been taken from their context to support this misnomer. And so James, before we really lean into James' words here, I want to, because he addresses this, and if you just take it on the surface, if you take what he says here on the surface, both in verses 9 and 10, when he talks about the exaltation of the poor or the lowly, and he talks about the humiliation of the rich, then if you just take that and gather it with other scriptures out of their context, then it's easy to reach that conclusion that even if the Bible is not saying it directly, certainly what it means is that it is not good to be rich. And so let me just kind of walk through some statements that have been, uh, that have been, missed, that have been combined to reach this conclusion. And the idea, again, even as we see it in the text, humiliation for the rich, exaltation for the poor. So there are a number of Bible verses that have been taken to undergird either an unspoken or a spoken, um, uh, really, conclusion that, that many people have when it comes to material wealth. So let's look, for instance, at the words of Jesus. Jesus himself says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's what Jesus says. Now if you think it's hard for a fat piece of thread or even a a, a yarn to go through the eye of a needle, do you know how impossible it is even in the biggest needle that you could possibly think of for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and some have suggested that refers to this gate that camels had to go through to enter into Jerusalem and that may have been the case and people who are smarter than me they might want to make that case I don't know but Jesus said a needle (laughs) And, and it seems like a ridiculous thought that a camel could actually finagle its way through the eye of a needle. And so Jesus says, as hard as that is to conceive, it's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Wow. Look at what else Jesus says in Luke's gospel. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, he says, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Or consider the warning that we see in Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist when your eyes light on it. It is gone or uh, it is gone for suddenly It sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. So it's easy to see from statements like these, on top of what James says in our text, that when these things are not clearly and properly handled, how one could jump to the erroneous conclusion that there is somehow a divine disdain for wealth and that somehow there is inherent virtue in poverty but i assure you that is not what the bible teaches now, the second thing we want to do is just look at three presuppositions or three preliminary i should say observations broadly concerning what James is addressing here uh, to kind of ground what we'll see in our text in particular. So specifically, the, the broader context that James, as he is addressing this issue here, there are three observations to make. Number one, the Bible declares, even this should be grounded in what he says, even in this passage, the Bible declares all of humanity to be equally guilty and therefore condemned under the law of God. The Bible says without any ambiguity that all are guilty. In fact, look in Romans chapter 3 and we'll look at verses 19 through 23. So there's no There's no designation of rich and poor, but he addresses the totality of the human condition. Beginning in verse 19. Uh, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight uh, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believes, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. So that's true. All of us are equally condemned under the law of God. And so the first thing to understand, if that's the case, then that means being poor won't give you a right standing. And being rich is not what puts you in jeopardy. But here's the second thing. And this is, again, feeding the background of what James is addressing here. In our fallen state, we are prone to an unhealthy perspective and pursuit of temporal things. In our fallen state, we are prone to an unhealthy perspective, in other words, an unhealthy view of temporal things and an unhealthy pursuit of temporal things. I think that's what Jesus is addressing in, in Luke 6. And also in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, when he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and, and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot or do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So part of our fallen condition is to try to attach or force eternal value on temporal things. Now, we are all grateful for historical and archaeological purposes to the, the, the burial habits of the ancient Egyptians. That's why we have King Tut's uh, tomb. And the reason I say we are, are in, indebted to them is because they, they did, number one, they did believe in an afterlife. But their misconception was that those things that are enjoyed in this life will transfer over into the afterlife. And so therefore the reason I say that we are we benefit from their burial habits is because all of the king's favorite stuff was put in the grave with him. And that meant his household cat So if if the king was a little, you know, a little under the weather, the cat might want to stray. He might want to just like, you know, it's probably a good time to leave now or just turn pharaoh and start biting the king or something so you'd you'd be chased away, because otherwise they mummify you as well. And even some of his favorite servants, they would mummify them. And so again, you might not want to be the king's favorite servant, because when he went, you went. But the idea was this, that we can take our toys with us, into the next life and they'll have the same value. The writer of Ecclesiastes makes this point in countless ways and he reminds all of his readers that the pursuit and the perspective concerning temporal things and ascribing them to, uh, to them eternal value is vanity. He says it's vanity and it's foolishness. In other words, it's vanity and it's empty. And so Jesus is never saying that wealth is not a good thing and that it can't serve a good purpose. The Bible is clear on these things, that that we can possess what we are allowed to possess, but the problem is in our fallen state, we have a tendency to ascribe eternal value and worth to things that are temporal and passing. And here's the other part of that. There's also a tendency to kind of evaluate ourselves according to what we possess in terms of things or status that is temporal. In other words, there is a tendency for some people to think they are their net worth, Whatever that net worth is. And we always see our net worth in dollars and cents. And not only do we see ourselves that way, but there is a tendency to see others in the same light. Which brings us to a third preliminary observation that leads us into the particulars that are addressed here in James. There is a tendency for fallen humanity to reinforce our rebellion against god by boasting and glorying in what we possess there is a tendency in our fallen nature to reinforce our rebellion because what is our rebellion against god we rebel against what he has what he requires of us And he, we rebel against even his creation. What he has given for our enjoyment, we have found our definition. I like what uh, the ancient church father Origen says about the children of Israel. He says that God told them to take the silver and gold from the Egyptians, but he didn't tell them to make a god out of it. God allows us to enjoy the things that he has created. But he has never told us to find our worth in it or to define him by it. And so therefore we reinforce the rebellion of our fallen nature by boasting and glorying in what we possess and what we accumulate and what we acquire rather than worshiping the God who gave it. That's part of what Paul is talking about where we end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24 we read this and this is a warning that Paul actually reiterates in 1 Corinthians 1. But in Jeremiah 9 the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast him who boasts boast in this: that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. So here's our problem, our stuff, our accumulations, our accomplishments end up in our fallen state, disconnected from our horizontal relationship with our a vertical relationship with God. These things are are used as a substitute for a right knowledge of God. And that's the problem that 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 is addressed throughout the scriptures, that we try to find eternal value and purpose in that which is temporal, which is really sort of a substitute for recognizing our disconnection from God. Well, that brings us then to the text. And so as we work our way back to the text and looking at what James is actually contending with, we'll see one thing that's clear. The first thing is this. It's apparent from chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 in the book of James. It's clear in these places that these Christians were viewing themselves and others through the corrupt and prejudicial class distinctions of the world. That's what's evident. We see it in chapter 2 when they were giving preferential treatment to those who looked outwardly to be rich and they were being dismissive towards those who outwardly seemed to be lesser or the lowly brother they were giving the preferential seats to those who dressed better and so therefore and to put it another way what was taking place is that christians within the church because james is addressing believers within the context of the church believers were seeing themselves and others through the lens of the world rather than seeing themselves first and foremost as children of God and they were were instead following the patterns of the world. Now, we could never conceive of a church where church people looked at one another in the same way that the world does. Could we? We can't conceive of church people thinking that black or white is better than black or white, or white and black. Or thinking that this social group is more acceptable and stronger and better than another social or ethnic group. We we can't conceive of anything like that, could we? Could we possibly conceive of a church that elevates, or people in the church elevating, one class, one color, one economic standard as being superior, and by definition, everyone else who is not that is inferior? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, we can. And so, therefore, what James is dealing with, even though it's specific to its first century time and place, What he's dealing with is ancient, as ancient as sin itself. These people were seeing themselves not as children of God, but rather they saw themselves as rich or poor. And rather than seeing others as equal image bearers of God and neighbors of whom they were supposed to love as themselves, they saw others according to the social status and the clothes they wore that's what James is dealing with but here's something else what compounds this situation is that this letter as we see from verse 1 is being addressed to the jewish believers in the diaspora the jewish christians this and so in other words even in their pre-christian understanding of the torah or the law of moses It should have taught them to see others as their neighbors and to have compassion on those who were less fortunate. But that's not what we see. What we see instead, again, as because James addresses this issue three times in a very brief letter. He addresses class distinctions within the church here in chapter 1. He addresses it again in chapter 2, and he returns to it in chapter 5. you think they had a problem with it? Yes. Because even though they knew the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ, somehow they saw themselves according to what their news feeds told them rather than what God's law told them. Brothers and sisters, we have to safeguard ourselves so that we are not drawn down some sinkhole where we are where it's permissible maybe in the broader culture to see people through certain categories and lenses but but far be it from us who have been saved by grace to see others as being anything less the very least we can be are neighbors and at the best we are brothers and sisters with those who claim the same Christ as us, but James is dealing with the problem where their fallen, with a fallen nature, is being reinforced by the thought patterns of the world, so that it's okay to otherize according to secondary artificial standards and structures, so that it's okay to somehow say that others are better. And some are worse. Brothers and sisters, this class consciousness does not come from God. It does not come, it's not in creation. And it does not come from the teaching of scripture. It doesn't come from the law. And it certainly isn't a fruit of the gospel. If we allow ourselves to see others as something other than image bearers of God, who are our neighbors, who deserve our love, Or who are our brothers and sisters with whom we are bound, then something else is informing us. And that's what James is addressing here. And so, what James is doing, the fact that this that that this sort of class consciousness is pervasive within this body of believers, it reinforces what James says about them later in chapter four when he says, You are worldly. And being being worldly in that regard, he says you are acting as if you are, when you act like the world, then you make yourself an enemy of God. He's not unchurching them. He's not in any way saying that, therefore, you're not a genuine believer. But what he is showing us is how far those who are called by grace how far away our actions can be from the truth that we confess. Well, here's the third and final thing, and that is, it's my contention that James is inviting both the poor and the rich, or the lowly and the rich, to assess themselves from the same point of reference. In other words, notice what he says, he says, he says that to the rich or to the lowly one, he says, let him rejoice in essence in his, or let him, let, let him rejoice in his or boast in his exaltation. Let him boast. Let the, the, the rich or the poor rejoice or, or boast in his exaltation. And then he says to the, 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 the rich man, let him boast in his humiliation now what gives us a clue that he's talking about the same source that they are to assess themselves by is the is what he does in contrasting he reminds the rich man that the stuff that you pursue here and what you have here is like the grass of the field is fading and the implication is that what therefore brings humility to the rich is not fading the humility that we gain in Christ is not fading but it's eternal and then the same thing what is it eternal what is it that gives the poor man his exaltation is that which is eternal Paul in Romans or in Galatians chapter 6 because I would argue this that what James is doing is inviting Both the rich and the poor, he's inviting them back to the cross, so that they can see themselves, and they can see their status, and they can see their possessions through the lens of the cross of Christ. In Galatians chapter six verse fourteen, Paul says, "But be far, be far, or, or far be it from me to boast, except in the cross." Of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which. The world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. So therefore both the poor and the rich. Are brought low by the cross. And the poor and the rich. Are exalted. By the cross. The poor and the rich are brought low by the cross. Because at the cross we are equally bereft. And we are equally condemned and we are equally exposed as being unable to meet the high demands of God's law. Now when we both go to the grocery store, the rich might be able to pour out, pull out of his pocket money that can buy groceries that you know we can't. The poor might have to put some stuff back to match what's in his pocket. The rich can go to, 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 to stores and, and markets that, that we can't even imagine and shop in stuff, for stuff that you wouldn't even think about. But when it comes to the cross of Christ, the rich man is just as broke as I am. When it comes to the demands of God's holy law, The rich man is just as his pockets are poured out and just like mine are poured out. Augustus Toplady, great hymn writer to the church, says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And That is the cry and that is the plea of everyone who comes to Christ. The the, the debt that we owe to the righteous judge is equal across the board. We all owe God perfect righteousness. And when it comes time to pay up, we're equally broke. We are equally unable to pay. And and listen, sometimes as poor folk, we can get away with what we can't afford by putting it on time. You know, paying for it in installments. Or putting it on layaway. but Brothers and sisters. We are all equal. Before the justice. Of God. And you can't put righteousness. On layaway. And you can't put the demands. Of God's holy law. On a credit card. Even if it is. High annual percentage rate. You still can't put it on a credit card. And so we are all equally broke and therefore humbled when it comes to the cross because we are reminded that what is demanded here is beyond our ability to pay. I remember a brother a number of years ago, his wife was a member of our church and he wasn't a member and So I made it a point to try to reach out to all of these husbands whose wives were attending the church, and they weren't. And so I went to him, and we sat down to have a meal. And so I just kind of talked to him, and he says, listen, you always call me Reverend. He says, listen, Reverend, let me just tell you. He says, listen, you're a nice guy and everything. He said, but look, I've I've got a good job. In fact, I have my own business. My wife works because she wants to. She's got a nice job. And we, I was able to give all three of my children a down payment for their first house. So he says, tell me now, what is it that you can offer me? I tried to answer him. He didn't really get it. He didn't really get it. I'm saying, I, first off, I said, I'm glad you said that. Because what the gospel offers you is not that. He didn't get it. He did attend the class. I invited all the brothers to attend. He did attend. And then his wife contracted cancer. And she called me up. She asked me, she says, listen, would you come to the home because I'm going to tell my family tonight that, that my cancer is incurable. And so I want you to be there. And, and, and I want you to, to be there with me as I tell my family that I'm about to die. So we came and we went and it was news to them. They didn't know it. And afterwards, the husband, who told me he had no need of the church because of all of the stuff that he had, he turns to his wife and he looks at her and he's broken. And sure enough, she dies. And I never will forget at her funeral, Him standing over the coffin and saying, Baby, I can't fix this. This, I can't fix. The rich man and the poor man, upon whom the full weight of divine justice rests, we are just, we are the same. He is as helpless. In the face of death as the poorest pauper. It is the cross that humbles us. But everybody's not humbled by the cross. Everyone still, some still think it's a joke. But, but those who are humbled and brought low by the cross, is they are brought low because of the grace of God that shows them that what they are, And what they have is not enough. But I would argue this brothers and sisters. Everyone who has been humbled by the cross. Has also been exalted by the cross. There is no one that has been leveled. And there is no one that has been humbled by the cross. That has not also been exalted. And the reason that we have been exalted is because once he has brought us low, once he has stopped our mouths and we see that we are in a predicament that our, our strength can't fix and that our money can't fix and that our education and influence can't fix, it's then that we look to the one who can. And there is no one who is brought low by the cross is not also exalted so that as by faith we share in the humiliation of our Savior being crucified on our behalf. By faith we share in the victory of his death in our place and we share in the victory of his resurrection from the grave. And we share in the exaltation in the fact that we are now seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's where it comes together. What James is trying to get his audience to see, what he's trying to get that rich man to see. He's not telling him to go out and sell all your stuff. He's not telling him to go bankrupt to prove how much you love Jesus. But here's what he's trying to get that rich person to see. That the most important thing about you is that you have been raised. You've been made low so that you could be exalted. And what is the most important thing about you is not what's in your will that you're going to leave to your children for them to squander. And not it's not in what's, what's in your bank account. No, the most important thing For you are the riches of God's grace that you have access to in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's not your net worth. It's the value that God has placed on the precious blood of his son. That's what gives us our worth. And so he says to the rich man, listen, here, you need to boast in the fact that you've been brought low enough to know that you've been elevated to be in the sun. And then he says here to the lowly brother, don't let anybody tell you, you you may be second class over here, over there, but here's where you are. If you want to boast in something, don't boast in your revolutionary cause Boast in the fact that you've been exalted. And brothers and sisters, yes, does does it matter what others say about us? And does it matter what others say to us? It does because God made us in a way where we respond to what people say. We respond to words. But here's the greatest word of all. That when men accuse you and when men won't let you eat, At the counter with others. When men look at you and and look the other way because you come into their place of business. When men do that. Don't start shaking a fist and throwing a middle finger to God. Because if you have been humbled and brought low by the cross. Then you also have been exalted. Exalted. They won't let you eat in their place, but God has seated you at his right hand. Men may look at you according to your color skin or according to your educational level or according to the car you drive, and don't we have some judgments about cars that are not as good as ours and sometimes even better than ours, then we exalt the people who have better cars and we... Look the other way and cross-eyed at those who have, quote-unquote, lesser cars. And it's to you, he says, don't glory in that. Don't glory, don't boast in those things, but boast in the exaltation that you have because you are in Christ. Here's what I'm saying as we come to the table. I don't know what your circumstance, your status, your situation. But but here's the challenge that we face to define ourselves and to define others according to artificial temporal standards, according to the flesh. But when we come to the table, we are both brought humble and exalted because we are being treated to a pleasure and to a treasure That exceeds all of our, literally, the New Testament says, what God gives us in Christ blows our mind. You know, we always love to tell the rags to riches story, started with nothing, and then notice how we get in it. And then I work myself up. That's how come some people have no tolerance for, for people who don't have what they had. I started with less than that, and look at what I did. God calls us to a table, and he says, by grace you have been saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So eat. If you're high, you eat. If you're, if you're, if you're upper class, you're eating not because you have the money to pay for it. You eat because you couldn't afford it. And you're eating the same free food that the rest of us eat. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and they used to give away government cheese. And you thought for a minute it was good because it makes for good grilled cheese sandwiches. And then you realize that people are judging you because your cheese is coming out of that box. because you can't afford to buy good cheese. Brothers and sisters, all of us have been brought to the table so that we could eat some government cheese. I call, I, I call the gospel God's welfare system. Because he gives to those who can't and who don't deserve it. And we become equal at this table. And we become equal in the gospel itself. James is challenging his readers to not see themselves according to the class distinctions that's been given to them by the world and to not see their neighbors according to designer labels and exotic cars but to see ourselves as one in Christ so that we can eat some more government cheese and receive some more welfare checks because none of us deserve it. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. Let the rich man see that God has graciously humbled him to show him what he needed but didn't have. And let the poor man see that God has graciously given to him a status that he never dreamed possible. Because we belong to him. And we are one in him. And it's important for us to see ourselves as we are in him. As well as to see our brothers and sisters through the lens of him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come before your word this this, this morning, pausing and thanking you. That you have humbled us, that we would see that our greatest problem is not our social standing. And others, you have allowed them to see that their greatest asset is not what they possess. You humbled us to see our need for what only you can give. And what you give has been secured by the the precious blood of your son, which is more precious than silver and gold. Let us boast in the price tag of our redemption. And let us see others through the lens of that same grace that we would be, we would walk and speak as worthy recipients. Not worthy so we received, but receive it in a way that is worthy of beggars who have been brought to the great banquet of your grace. Thank you, Father, for what you've given us in Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 As a choir makes their way down, we are going to prepare for the Lord's table. Usher's come.